Hello, this is Daniel Roebuck, and you are listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors, which is what I am. So that's why I'm happy you're listening, because we work hard. Okay, enjoy. Hey, everyone, this is C. Fane Dixon, and welcome to this episode of What a Character. My guest today is the late, great Philip Baker Hall. In his final interview, Mr. Hall will talk about how he first met Paul Thomas Anderson, how he overcame ageism in Hollywood, and how President Kennedy affected his career. It's all that and more on this episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. My guest today is a man who has played more judges than any other actor in the world. Aside from playing judges, you may have seen him play everything from priests, government officials, police lieutenants, and what have you. As a child growing up in Toledo, Ohio, he had dreamed of becoming an actor. And after spending his early 20s serving in the army as a translator and afterwards working as a high school English teacher, he decided to finally pursue a career in acting. In 1960, he moved to New York where he found himself cast in many Broadway and off-Broadway plays for years to come. In 1970, he made the decision to move to Los Angeles, where he eventually gained numerous guest starring roles in such TV shows as Good Times, MASH, Emergency, The Waltons etc., etc. In 1960, he moved to New York where he found himself cast in many Broadway and off-Broadway plays for years to come. In 1970, he made the decision to move to Los Angeles, where he eventually gained numerous guest starring roles in such TV shows as Good Times, MASH, Emergency, The Waltons, etc., etc. This led to him getting cast in his first regular TV role on a short-lived but critically acclaimed prison drama, Mariah, and supporting roles in films such as Three O'Clock High, Midnight Run, Ghostbusters 2, and Say Anything. In 1991, he played his most memorable role as Lieutenant Joe Bookman on the library episode of the classic TV sitcom, Seinfeld. In 1996, he starred as the lead character, Sidney, in Paul Thomas Anderson's feature debut, Hard Eight. This led to him getting cast in such P.T. Anderson films as Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Around this time, he starred in such films as The Rock, Rush Hour, Air Force One, The Truman Show, Enemy of the State, The Insider, 
rules of engagement, and path to war. In recent years, you may have seen him as the Dunphy's neighbor, Walt Gleezak, on Modern Family, or as Zelman Katz in the Netflix original series, Messiah. Please welcome to the show, the legendary Philip Baker Hall. Mr. Hall, thank you so much for coming on my show today. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Colin. Now, does, despite your age and, and your bouts with epizema, uh, you've managed to continue acting. What, what has motivated you to keep on working despite these obstacles? Um, well, my emphysema uh, appeared as a limiting factor. It had been, I guess, um, uh, present for a long time, but it was not. Uh, it didn't stop me from doing anything. It just slowed me down a little bit. But I mean, literally, physically, slowed me down. But it became limiting uh, in terms of what I could play, uh, what roles I could play, um, and and when and where I could play them, um, because I have to have uh, oxygen, um, supplementary oxygen, as they call it, uh, all the time, 24 hours a day. Mm. So what we've worked out, um, since I was not ready to quit, I was otherwise physically healthy um, and, um, and still retained uh, um, knock on wood, gloriously, uh, gloriously, uh, uh, and forever uh, uh, full of uh, um, thanks uh, for the ability to quickly and easily memorize lines and retain them for at least as long as I had to to get through the filming. Uh, a particular, uh, a particular skill that that really has uh, enabled me to continue working. Um, uh, I can still read something and memorize it quickly. Um, but working is difficult because there are certain ironies involved here. When I appeared in, um, as, as Walter or whatever it's Slezak, uh, I, I, this had nothing to do with my physical condition at the time. I was not yet diagnosed as one with emphysema when I did that. I did not have or need supplementary air. They made the character on their own, a guy that needed supplementary air, He's supposed to be a, a retired fireman. So they gave him uh, ear uh, and they gave him hearing aids and they gave him supplementary air, neither of which I required at the time, um, as in art imitating, no life imitating art, I guess in this case. Um, it was several years later that I was diagnosed with emphysema and required to uh, to have the air. So there I am appearing uh, with the all the, the paraphernalia that goes with the air. Um, but I didn't require that until about six years ago. Um, so, but I continued to work up until about a year and a half ago. Uh, and what we did was, um, if somebody made an offer, uh, then um, it was explained to them that I needed the air, but I could be off of it for two or three minutes at most. But then I would need to have it um, reconstituted uh, and I would need another three to five minutes to get it um, back up so that it might add some time to a shooting schedule because it's uh, pretty common these days to, to do multiple takes um, back to back. It's always been common to do multiple things, but, 
but back to back doing one and then everybody takes a breath and you do another and you take a breath, you do another, you might do five or six or seven uh, without a pause really, except just to sort of reset the dialogue, reset the scene, reset the machines, all that. So, so it would be explained in advance that I wouldn't be able to do that. I would need recovery time in between. So I don't know if everybody who accepted that quite understood what was being presented to them. Um, everybody said yes to it, and nobody blinked when it when it was when I had to do it on the set. Um, nobody said anything about it really, but I think maybe somewhere in an office, maybe some executive was saying, "Holy shit, what's what's going on here? Are we going to wait to do six takes? Are going to take two hours to do six six takes of this? I don't know. Nobody ever said that to me." But um, uh, anyway, everything went fine and I was able to recover and then do the next take and do the next take and everybody was uh, acted just like it was a regular day at the office. But since then, I have not, um, I have not accepted any work. Um, I've had a couple of opportunities, one of them pretty good actually, but it required physical stuff that I don't think I could do because I can't. Hey, if I can sit behind a desk and look like the judge or look like the secretary of state or the police chief, that's fine. Uh, I can do that um, without the mask for two or three minutes, uh, without feeling any uh, dangerous loss of, uh, of oxygen. But if I have to move, um, then, it's, then it's a different story. And I run out of oxygen very quickly and, um, and it could, could have an emergency. So. Anyway, why did I keep working? I wanted to keep working. I was still able, and we were still getting offers for good parts. And um, and I still and I have two two um, younger daughters, and one's in college, and one is uh, is out of college now. So um, I wanted to keep the medical stuff alive, and you have to keep working on a regular basis because uh, the, the guild has changed how they work the medical thing now for older performers. So those are some of the reasons that were motivating me, keeping everything going and uh, keeping all the pension and welfare stuff moving. And, uh, and also because I wanted to keep working. I didn't feel my, my time was, was done yet working. So and I still feel that way, but, but I say it's, it's difficult now because it has to be a role that where I don't have to do much moving. I have to move very much um, and be away from the oxygen more than a couple of minutes and I wouldn't be able to do it. And it's too long of an answer, but that's it. <laughs> I, I'm surprised you haven't done more voice work because you've got, you got quite a voice and you know, it doesn't require a lot of you know, physical movement. Yeah, I have done some voice work over the years, um, including one notable one that, where I, I did for, I don't know, some big hotel chain. They made an offer that was not refusable a, few, a couple of years, about seven or eight years ago. Um, and some other small ones along the way. But here's the thing on the voice. The voice thing is a very competitive aspect of our business, extremely competitive. Most of the people, other than the big superstar names, who didn't used to do that many in the past, but they're doing a lot now because all the other ways the business has changed, even for the people at the very top. Um, it's a very competitive area of the business. And there are people who don't do anything else. 
they uh, they apply all their craft, their talent, their intelligence, their time, their commitment to the voiceover thing. And it, it requires quite a commitment if you're going to go after it. And I had so much going on. Remember that all this time that I was doing um, all these movies, and I did do almost 100 movies in there, uh, and, and over 300 uh, episodes of TV. I was also doing plays. And I did during that same period of time, 30 or 40 plays, I think. So I was also doing all this at the same time. So to constantly, hey, look, I was not above making millions of dollars on voiceovers. And a number of, 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 uh, of agents, including my own, uh, it was not her specialty, but many agents did say, you know, you could do really well at this. You ought to, you ought to work on this. Doing this was over the years, and I tried it. I, I wasn't above trying it. I made tapes. They were sent out. We tried for things. I didn't get them, or I got stuff that wasn't that wasn't leading to to the next step. And I realized that, like anything in life, you can't make a halfway commitment if you want to really get where you want to go. Here, you have to sort of make a commitment. And my commitment was always to be an actor. Not that you couldn't do both, but if you wanted to be at the very top, by the way, I had a couple of friends who were at the top of the voice, of the voice business. And I, I know what, what they had to do in order to get there and to stay there. And I say it's very competitive. And I was not up for that competition. I was up though for the competition for acting roles, both in the theater and in film and in television. That I could handle, but there was no time in my my life or my day to also compete for voiceovers. I wish more had come my way, which a few did, but I wish I wish a lot more had come my way. It would have been great. Now, you started out in Ohio uh, yeah. acting in local stage plays. I'm assuming there wasn't a big theater community at the time, so I imagine getting that work must have been difficult. It was a bigger stage community than, than I mean, it's a long time back for me to even remember uh, stuff back there. But I know that, um, uh, the, that there was a, um, the, the university with Dr. Bell, whom I had referred to earlier, had a, he had a very active program. I mean, I played Iago in a production of Othello there when I was 17 years old. Um, and he had a great um, actor playing Othello, an actor who, later became a producer in Hollywood, an extremely successful producer. In fact, he actually, uh, for a few years, was the head of MGM Studios, Andrew J. Finnerty. Uh, he was a student at the University of Toledo and he played Othello. I played Iago. Uh, Andy died a couple of years ago, uh, unfortunately. But um, um, so there was the University Theater, which was, which, uh, was kind of well-known in the city. And then there was a the, something called the Toledo Repertory Company, which was also kind of known because a lot of people who were um, probably who had come through various theater programs in college wanted to continue uh, after they got through college. And they joined a group called the Toledo Repertory Company. And they were extremely active and got a lot of um, notoriety in Toledo. And several of them, uh, the, the most known one that I was aware of was one called Jerry or Jerome Dempsey, who went to New York 
and had a great career, Broadway and off-Broadway in New York, Jerry Dempsey. Um, he was a few years ahead of me. Uh, I don't know, probably seven or eight or nine years older than I was. Maybe Jerry was. But um, there were a number of actors from Toledo who left. So there was, there was some um, uh, unusual interest in Toledo, Ohio in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s uh, that we saw played out uh, in, at the New York level over the years. So, oh, and, and a series on, on, what was the series, Boone? What, um, um, oh, I can't think of the one. It was a long time series. Three, three something from the moon um, with John. Oh yeah, uh, Joe and uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph and Joseph um, Levitt Gordon was was on that as a uh, as a kid. Third Rock from the Sun. Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah, John, who was the, the star of that. Um, John is from Toledo originally, and his dad oh. ran a theater company in Toledo, uh, and I think down John's early days, he grew up in Toledo, uh, and then they moved when his dad got offered the job at Princeton as the artistic director of the theater at Princeton. His dad took over that. And so John has a, a deep, uh, I can't think of John as I sound at the moment, uh, but he was the star of uh, Third Rock for the Sun. Uh, anyway, so, so there, was a, uh, there was something going on theater-wise in Toledo. Now explain to us how John F. Kennedy gave you a career boost. Did I say that somewhere? <laughs> no, I did some research and I found out that, that you were part of a program that John F. Kennedy created for actors. Oh no, no, that's a, that's a uh, well, interesting how things get. Uh, it's like that game of telephone. Things get told in one way and another. Way. <laughs> uh, that one sounds like I can probably I can probably um, explain that one. In uh, 1959 and 60, John F. Kennedy signed on with Russia and several countries in Europe and eventually with Japan and China uh, to an arts um, exchange program where we would send our best, among other things, theater artists um, as a repertory company to them and they would send theirs on the exchange to us. And there was a, the JFK uh, initiated this program uh, and um, it was a, uh, it was funded by the State Department and underseen by the State Department, overseen by the State Department. Um, and um, we had uh, Helen Hayes, Life Erickson, June Havoc uh, were the stars of it. And, um, Roy Scheider and I were on that tour, and um, and we were sent um, on the South American arm of the tour, hmm. and we were about three three and a half months uh, on the tour that went to almost almost every country in South America. That's JFK's um, cultural enrichment tour, or JFK's lots of names for it. But I think that's probably where that came about because um, I had nothing to do with JFK. Believe me. Uh, uh, it would have been great, but I, I didn't. So, uh, but probably somebody picking up the remnants of the story I'm telling you about the tour, uh, <laughs> where we did uh, three plays in repertory. Um, uh, and Helen Hayes, uh, who at the time was the reigning queen of American theater, uh, 
Does that name resonate at all with you, Helen Hayes? Helen, was she in films? The name sounds familiar. Well, she did some films, and she won an Academy Award uh, back when. But she was in her 60s when we did the tour. And James MacArthur from Hawaii Five O. That's her. That was her son. Uh, oh, okay. Her, okay. James MacArthur yeah. was her son, and and the great uh, the great writer was her husband. Um, uh, great writer who wrote, wrote some very heavy duty Broadway plays. Um, on Charles, um, can I think of his name? Anyway. Um, and Life Erickson, of course, he was a big TV star uh, and a big movie star. He was, Life Erickson was, uh, was um, a big leading man back in the early days of, of sound movies or in the later days of sound movies or of the, Latin, the later days of silence. And then sound came in um, and then he had a career and he was still having a good career when we did uh, when we did the play. Anyway, he was the, the leading man on the tour. And June Havoc, of course, was a was a person of interest uh, then as she had been before and as she continued to be until her death a few years ago. So anyway, Roy and I were there on that tour and about <coughs> this, and it, and it was, it, let's say we, it was a, the, the, everything, the great hotels, the wonderful, beautiful cities, um, that we stayed in the, um, the 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 air flights itself, first class. Everything was funded by the State Department, so it was like it was sensational. I would say, and that was in '61 or '62 that I made that made that tour. But that opened some doors for me in New York uh, because it was so laden with um, with big name big name performers that um, I had a couple off Broadway credits when I already. But I didn't have anything. I couldn't open a lot of doors. It's all about opening doors. If you want to be an actor, um, you've got to figure out a way to open those doors without um, without making too many people angry. Um, but you still have to figure a way to to get in there to sell your 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 basket of stuff. So anyway, that's what that was all about with JFK. I'm sure that's what it was all about because I had no other contact with JFK. I can't think of any lies I told about JFK at the time either. So that's, that sounds so amazing. You know, you, you start out doing theater in New York, and the next thing you know, you're traveling to foreign countries with yeah, it was, great it was actors. pretty strange. It was pretty strange. I had a little they had already made a trip to Europe and they had been gone three months in Europe, and they were in Paris and they were in Frankfurt and they were in London, of course, they were all over Europe, many European countries. And uh, and they were coming back and taking a couple of months off and then getting ready for the South American arm. Then after that, they were going to take the Asian leg of the tour. So when they came back, the word was out in the acting community in New York that a lot of people didn't want to make the um, South American tour. They, they wanted to get on with their careers because they felt that great as the tour was, that their career sort of stopped for the months that they were gone. So uh, I knew that that people who were playing these smaller parts uh, and, and understanding larger parts, that they were looking for those roles. So when I tried to get in the door there, I knew that there were openings in those roles. And Roy did the same, he knew that too. So we were, 
So it, it, it all worked out, you might say. Now, in the early 70s, when you went out to Hollywood, uh, did you have problems getting roles to do the fact that you were middle-aged? And if so, how did you overcome that hurdle and, yeah, and, exactly and have a busy I, career? I came out here in 75, not 70. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so I was, how old was I when I came out here? I was 50. Well, I'm, I was 90 last month, two months ago. So whatever, going back to, uh, to 75, whatever I was then, uh, 53, 52, 50, or 49. 44, it says you were born in 31. Oh, okay. That's about right. Yeah. I was going to say I wasn't 50 yet. Um, yeah, I did. I did find a lot of uh, pushback out here because it's not, it, everything is so different now. So anything I say now would, uh, it, about then, would probably be so much different now that they uh, defy comparison. But at the time in New York, it was good to have an agent, but it was okay if you didn't. In other words, you can't say, I didn't succeed in New York because I didn't have an agent. And that, that excuse doesn't work. You could still find a way to get your, your leg in the door, your arm in that door, um, open that crack a little more, even without an agent, because I didn't have an agent for most of the jobs that I did. It wasn't until I was leaving, when I was just beginning to really get established, that the world of useful agents was open to me. Before that, it wasn't. I was just sending out stuff on my own and, and doing my own research. Um, but when I came out here, um, I realized pretty quickly that that was not the game in Hollywood. In Hollywood, you had to have an agent. Without an agent, basically, nobody would see you because the people whom you would see um, wanted to know that you were that you were tested, that you would pass the gauntlet of fire, that you were truly dependable, that you were who you said you were, and so on. So you needed an agent to sort of vouch for your presence, for your um, for who you were, because people to crash the Hollywood doors for decades have been saying anything they wanted to say. Yeah, I was a, uh, you know, I was a, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a three-time award winner of the blah, blah, blah. And I appeared in 23 productions of so-and-so. And before that, I was a, I was a, uh, a Korean, uh, I was a World War II veteran and I read, uh, you know, 50, I don't know. People were hearing all kinds of stories and nobody, at the production level, the casting level, knew whom to believe, and you couldn't. There were actors; they were, you know, making up roles, giving themselves an identity. They, so, therefore, as the Hollywood, uh, as Hollywood uh, success became more and more coveted, people got wilder and wilder in their uh, attempt to crash the gates, as it were. And so that they had to set up a defense line. So somewhere, not that long before I arrived, but probably seven or eight years before I arrived, you had to have an agent and the agent would vouch for you to, to the casting people or to the production company and say, yes, we've got this wonderful actor. I've seen him in a film. 
I've seen him in the theater. I know I can vouch for his his credits, his on scene, so forth. So that was very hard to do when I first came out here, because the agents in Hollywood, the ones who were sort of um, rooted to Hollywood, who did not have a New York background, looked on New York actors with kind of a lot of suspicion. They knew that if if it was really true that New York actors, by and large, are probably better than Hollywood actors, if they could vouch for that, they would welcome us. But a lot of them weren't sure because they didn't know how to read the credits that we had, didn't know what they meant, um, didn't know how to interpret them. You give a you know a couple of references to off-Broadway theaters uh, and plays that they never heard of. It would make you look like an imposter, even though you weren't. So a lot of agents that I went to, and I and the, the deal if you had come from New York and you didn't have somebody to vouch for you, you had to go from agent to agent, uh, which, you know, in Hollywood is, you can't walk it in the theater district. You know, you had to like drive cross, cross country. It seemed like sometimes that, you know, if you got to see two agents in a day, that would be great between the time you had to drive between them and the waiting time in their office to drop your resume in a basket where it probably got thrown away. So when I, when I did eventually get into see agents, which eventually I did here and there, um, most of them would hear my sad story uh, and say, well, look, even if I did believe you, they would say, I heard this a lot, and I think I do believe you. You have to get in line, they would say. You're not in line. He said, you don't know how many people who are in line ahead of you, whom I've already met, of whom I'm saying, if your type comes up, um, middle age, white, short, not handsome, and so on. They would list all the all the negatives on the thing. They say, if that type comes up, uh, I'll, I'll I'll submit you, right? So I got this kind of negative acceptance from a lot of people who would say, you know, and some of them weren't weren't quite that cruel. Some of them were. Uh, some of them were not. Some of them said, you're an interesting type. You have an interesting voice. They would say, they won't comment on the voice. So you have an interesting voice, an interesting look. They said, if I see a role that seems to require that, I'll give you a call. Well, a couple of them did call me. And one guy called me. Uh, uh, his name was Dale something. I'm sure he's long since uh, deceased. But um, Dale was handling animals and children. Uh, and he had a few grown-up actors, and he actually submitted me for a movie of the week, which I got a uh, small part. But anyway, uh, I, so I, I got an inroad right there. I got a, I got something on tape that I could chose because that's what they all wanted was drop your resume. Oh, and don't forget your tape. Drop your tape in the in the tray too. Well, initially, the first year or so, I didn't have a tape. I had no tape to show them. So, but again, little by little, persistence hanging on, following leads, getting to know people, getting to know people who did know who I was and knew that the background was, as I said, it was from New York. Um, one thing led to another and I began to get a, a better class of role, bigger parts, better roles, and so on. So, hey, the best one was uh, at that time, the best one was Good Times. And that was an incredibly popular show. And 
I got submitted for that by a small agent who, um, uh, it was a two-parter. And I didn't know that when I got submitted. And it was a pretty good two-parter too. And uh, my God, I mean, that, that kept me going for, just that alone kept me going for a couple of years, I think. Um, and, and the ability to use that in the next job. As I say, the fact it was a multi-parter was a big, and I get residuals from that even today, uh, like eight or nine dollars uh, a year from uh, from good times. And um, anyway, that that kind of got me uh, got me going a little bit out here. Good times did. So it gave you that exposure you needed to continue working. That was and that was not a an agent. That agent wouldn't be in business anymore. I think she got married, left, left the business. Um, after I did uh, Secret Honor, uh, no, I was already making a living then. Not, not that Secret Honor didn't put me in a different category, which it definitely did. But um, uh, the agent, I had just recently signed with um, an agent before then. What was his name? Um, God, he had been an agent for a lot of huge Hollywood stars, but he was older now. He was probably close to 80. And th those stars had all gone by. And he was like, it was like a, it's like what happens in any business in a way. You know, you work and you work and you work and you have your peak and then, and then they, uh, the graph starts going down the other way. And he was going down the other way. He'd lost all his good clients and uh, he was Armstrong. Armstrong was his partner. Armstrong was already gone. I can't think of his name. But um, so he was kind of a nice guy. And he took me on simply because he was looking, I think, for clients for whom, like me, it was a step up. Even though for him, I was a step down. So everybody was, was featured here. He was thinking, great, I got a younger actor who might go somewhere. And for me, it was like, great, I got a big name agent who might lift me into a different, a different category. So, but I, but somewhere in there, I did the Nixon thing. And I got him a copy of it. And he looked at it and he didn't think much of it. And I said, well, can't we use this? And he said, for what? I said, well, it's it's a one-man movie. There aren't many of those by a by an internationally. Uh, adored uh, filmmaker. I said, surely we can do something with this. Uh, I said, there aren't two of these. There's only one of these and, and we have it. Um, so I said, I think it's worth something in terms of opening doors. We're talking about opening doors. And he had, because he was, I'd say, older and on the downslope, he was founding those old doors not open because whatever, Clark Gable was not his client anymore, whoever had been in the in the big days, way back. So um, I went to another agent and, and he, he, he was really angry. I can't tell you how angry he was. He said, here I am doing you a favor, you know, pulling you up to a level where you've never been, blah, blah, blah. He was, he had it all straight. He wasn't wrong, but I couldn't stay with an agent who didn't see the value of it or didn't know how to use or wasn't, wasn't hip to at least trying to figure out how to use the gold that we had in our hands. So I left him, unfortunately. Um, 
And in the meantime, I don't think I ever got a job through him. Um, but I never, I never held him responsible for, for not getting me a job. I liked him, he was nice. But, um, but, but this was something that we couldn't sit on. Uh, we, and again, while the iron is hot in this business, uh, if you have ability to strike, you, you better strike while that iron is hot because it comes and goes so fast out here. You really have to, to watch it until you get in that pantheon of performers who are gonna work forever no matter what they do, um, um, because they got lucky at the right place at the right time. So we weren't there. So uh, I had to leave uh, Armstrong. Yeah. Armstrong was the, his partner's name. I shouldn't use that name because it was, wasn't the, the other guy. A lot of pits and valleys out here in the business. Of, you may have already determined that it's a, it's a rocky business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, I've worked as a production assistant and associate producer on a few movies, and I've talked to yeah. actors, and it, you know, they all they all say the same thing about how you know it's complicated, and you know, it's you know, especially with social media nowadays, where you have actors oh, getting roles because of their social media likes. Well, I see. I would not in today's world. I would not be an actor. Uh, I don't know what I would be doing. A little hard for me to tell because I were younger and had. Uh, all life to fill, to do. I don't know what I would do, but I certainly wouldn't be an actor because, and I, and I really empathize with those who are, because one of the best, probably the best tool that the actor has. I mean, when I came out to Hollywood, once you got in, if you could get an audition for something, you usually met the director. I mean, that was still going on in the 70s and into the 80s. You actually met the director, actually probably shook his hand and the writer and a group of producers. The producers would be sitting back there. The director and the writer might be sitting together on a front table. And then there was a casting person who was definitely functioning as the person who brought you in, uh, basically. But the casting was really being done by the, uh, by the director. And um, so you, you, um, you actually got, you actually got to, he had to confront the actor. He had to sit there while the actor um, actually read the material or performed the material in front of you, or at least um, talked at a social level with the director. So the director could get a sense of who this person might be and would he work with him for uh, a day or 10 days or a month or whatever. So, but now, they don't meet the director in that way. Now it's all done on the internet. Now, how did you first meet Paul Thomas Anderson? And what was it about him that made you think, hey, this guy, has, this guy knows what he's doing. He has the storytelling ability. He certainly has the talent. Well, I was doing a, uh, I was doing a play at the Los Angeles Theater Center. And um, there, was a, uh, uh, there was a guy playing a role in the play an actor, a good actor too. Forgive me for not remembering his name. I, I really, I see, I can still remember lines, which I can, but I do have trouble with names, no doubt about it. Um, uh, playing my son, and he was, um, he knew Paul Thomas Anderson. I didn't know Paul Thomas Anderson, although I was acquainted with his dad, but only through a friend of a friend of a friend, um, Ernie, Ernie Anderson who was, I don't know if this is generally known, 
but his dad was a, he was a voiceover guy. Huh. And he was at the very top of the voiceover business. He was one of the legendary voiceover guys uh, in the business, Ernie Anderson was. What did he narrate? What did he work on? Oh, I don't know what he narrated. Uh, commercials. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's where the money is in, in voiceover business, in the commercials. Because you you get paid for each each time it plays, radio commercials and TV too. Um, but it's radio where the, where the big money used to be made by uh, by commercial uh, by commercial by actors who did voiceover commercials. Uh, anyway, um, so um, no, I didn't know Paul at all, and this actor had he had done something with Paul, and he said that Paul had a script that he needed an older actor for. Uh, the actor who led me to Paul was a young young, young actor or younger, probably 30 or so. Um, and he said that he had mentioned um, my name to Paul. And he said, Paul said, oh, I saw, I have a copy of Secret Honor. And I loved him in Secret Honor. Hmm. So he said, he said, oh, he said, you know him. Paul said to him, um, well, he's right for a role I have in a short film that I'm writing. Ask him if he'd be interested. So then this actor in a rehearsal, said, by the way, there's an actor and there's a writer named Paul Thomas Anderson. He said, who's written a role in a, in a movie, short movie, uh, no pay, just a short movie, uh, but like a student film, uh, would you, and he brought me the script for it. I said, well, I'd love to read it. I think I was doing Death of a Salesman. I think it was starting rehearsal for Death of a Salesman at that time. Um, and so I said, I read it and I was kind of knocked out by the quality of the writing. I said, this writing is pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty high level. I said, it's really kind of astounding. I said, yes, I would love to, uh, to do this. So then we set up a meeting and I met Paul and then um, the three of us, him, a young woman actress uh, and the young man uh, that, that, that I knew that was the bridge that the three of us did in, a, uh, in the short movie called Coffee and Cigarettes. Or is it cigarettes and coffee? I can't never remember. Uh, whatever it is, it was a a really small version of what Hard Eight turned out to be, although quite different. But still, the seeds are there for what turned turned out to be Hard Hard Eight. And um, we met, and um, and then we met on the movie. And while we were there, it turned out that one of the because even a small movie requires money to fund it, uh, and he had a lot of professional people working on it, working on the sound and on the camera. And um, one of the women who was sort of a sponsor of it was a woman called Judith Rutherford Marischal, who was a producer at CBS and somewhere in, in his or his father's circle of friends. And Judy had been the producer of a play off-Broadway that was very successful that I had done in New York. Huh. And so it was like, oh my God, there's Judy. And then I learned that earlier on when, when he was considering using me, that she apparently had already vouched for me. Yes, he's a really good actor. He was in my play in New York that, that I produced in New York. So Paul and I became friendly and we did the movie. And um, after we finished the movie, uh, 
a few weeks. Um, he called me and he said he was putting it together. It really looked great. Uh, he said, however, a lot of it was screwed up technically, he said. He said that we should reshoot some portions of it, quite a bit of it, actually. Uh, and that would I do it? Because there was nothing involved in terms of money. And again, the, the writing was so extraordinary. And by now, Paul and I had become friends. So I said, sure, of course, I'll do it. So we did it. And it was quite a redo because it way outside of L.A. where we did it. But then at a diner uh, halfway to I don't know where. Um, anyway, we redid it. And I guess whatever he needed, because I never saw the version that he said didn't work right. Um, whatever he needed, he got on the second doing. And, um, and, then, and then after that, or sometime after that, that, um, that he called me and said, I'm working on a script. He said, uh, he said I, think you'll, I think you'll like it. He said, I'm about done with it. I'm going to send you a copy of it. And that's when he sent a copy of what was called Sydney then. Um, and what turned out to be Art Aid. So, and I read that and I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Again, the writing was so dense and multi-layered that uh, it was unbelievable. It was truly unbelievable. It was like it was like like Shakespeare just dropped uh, in the door, you know. It's like where did this come from? Uh, this is not ordinary. It's a good thing. By that time, I mean I'd seen hundreds and hundreds of scripts. Uh, I knew what a an original script looked like or a new script looked like. And this was like nothing I had ever seen in terms of the the, the, the clarity and the density and the, just the power of the writing. It must have been surprising given that he was only 23 at the time. Yeah, that was really surprising. That was, um, it was, it was shocking. It was shocking. Yeah. What do you remember about working with William Friedkin and rules of engagement? <laughs> He's one of my favorite directors. So I had to ask. <laughs> yeah, Friedkin. Friedkin was an interesting guy. Um, um, it's funny. I, I had, uh, I had read for William Friedkin on a movie. I think the movie he did prior to that, um, something. Was it Jade? No, something. Was it called Hollywood? Something. Well, Hollywood was in the title. A lot of good guys and bad guys. Somebody gets dangled out of a window. Hmm. I don't the name of that movie was. Wasn't a very good movie, I don't think. But anyway. Um, but he, of course, is a legendary director. And anyway, he offered me a role in that movie, whatever that movie was, um, where he dangled out of a window. That was way back. And, uh, and I turned that down because um, I think I might have been the guy that got dangled out the window. <laughs> and, and I had heard, I know that that uh, Ray Schreider had done a movie with uh, three of Freddy. He did the one with Take the Dynamite. Over the Hill, which was a remake of Sorcerer, yeah, of the French movie, yeah, mm. and um, I know that uh, Friedkin did that movie, so um, I knew he went kind of like extremes with things, and oh, I, I knew uh, I got another actor, he got a really good actor, New York actor, um, did a lot of stuff out here, now now deceased. Um, he is reputed to have hit Friedkin. And they had a scuffle on set about some film that they were that he was making. That Friedman got crazed with him and asked him to do something and made some remarks. And he he went, as I understood, is not the only person done that with Friedman's difficult. He's difficult. 
Wow. So, and that was back. Okay. So one day, you know, my agent calls and said, you've got an offer for a movie starring uh, Tommy and uh, Tommy Lee Jones uh, and called Rules of Engagement. Said it, and it's a good offer. Said it's a, it's a hell of a role. Well, actually in the original script, the role was a lot bigger than it actually turns out to be in a movie. It was a great role in the script, but I won't go into that. It's another story, but um, so she said, but he wants to meet you and he wants Tommy to meet you. So we had a meeting at Paramount Studios. Uh, and remember now, uh, at this point, I remember I didn't need the job. In other words, there was no reason to, um, to defer to William Friedkin, right? I didn't have to do that uh, or anybody. Um, so it was just a meeting and I met Friedkin Oh my God, he was effuse with um, with praise. Uh, and he said, oh, I saw this, I loved you, I loved you in that, oh, you were great in this, oh, you were so good in this. And I like to meet Tommy Lee Jones, also a big fan of yours. Tommy gave me a big embrace. Tommy's not known for that, by the way. He's very solitary, Tommy is. Mm. But, um, but still, in that meeting, that meeting was really curious. I thought back on that meeting quite a bit, including one of the things that William Friedkin said to me. He said, he said, my God, he said, I'm just so, so happy to meet you. He said, I, I hope this is the beginning of, of, of a great series of, of, of working um, partnerships and so on and so on. Um, I thought, hey, life could be worse. You know, I'm, I'm not complaining. So anyway, we shot the movie and um, we, had no, we had no difficulty. He didn't, he didn't do any numbers on me or anybody as far as I could see. Uh, Tommy Lee was the way he, not, uh, not at all like he was in that meeting at Paramount, but he, he wasn't uh, bad, he was, uh, he was friendly. Came to the set, did his job. I came to the set, did my job. Uh, nothing, was, uh, nothing was broken, nothing was created uh, either way. Uh, we shot that in, uh, in Virginia, Washington DC and uh, LA, and I don't know, we shot it all over the place. Um, and um, my character had quite a few really good scenes in it. I noticed we're not in the final. An actor can't get too excited about that though because you talk to any actor, including even the biggest of stars and everybody will start whining about the great scene that's not in the movie. Um, my best scene is a frequent thing you'll hear from a lot of actors. My best scene is not in the movie. <laughs> um, um, but I was, I was particularly uh, upset because I did have a couple of great scenes that were not in the movie. I always uh, thought about that if they had been in there. But uh, be that as it may, but I'm, he never made another offer. He did make a movie right after that about uh, a contract killer who had been uh, like an assassin type. Um, the Hunted? What? Was it The Hunted? How recent is that? Uh, that was 2003. Tommy Lee Jones is in that. Okay, well, that could be the one. Yeah, it could be the one. Mm -hmm. He sent me a script to that. And Chris said, we got this script. She says, I'm not sure what he intends on this, but said he sent it to us for you. So we tried to, and we never heard from him again. So she said, um, should, I, uh, should I send back that we're interested? I said, well, without knowing exactly what he's thinking, yeah. Send back Brimson, see what's what. And we never heard back. 
So that's just a little history there. That, right? Don't know what happened. Anyway, did the movie and and uh, everything was um, everything was fine. I found his manner uh, as a director. I found it uh, businesslike uh, and brusque, very brusque. Uh, I would say, and that's the worst I can say about him. He's a little brusque. I can't, you know, I can't think of anything bad at all to say about him. He was, he was polite and uh, efficient, businesslike. Tommy also. Tommy was polite, businesslike. It was good. It was a good, it was a good setup, and I, I, I enjoyed shooting it. You got to work with the great John Frankenheimer on Path to yes, War. I did. What, what do you remember about working with him? Uh, well, you know, a lot of people were in that movie. You know. Uh, I, the uh, uh, Alec Baldwin was in that movie, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Donald, um, um, every Canadian actor was Donald in that movie. Sutherland. Yeah, Donald Sutherland was in that movie, uh, and of course, the great English actor was playing Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, in that movie. Uh, a lot of terrific. That, that was an interesting movie. Very interesting movie. Did you ever have to see that? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's a great and film. Interesting, interesting movie. Um, and of course, he died shortly after in an accident, uh, an operating room accident. You know, that he, he went in for a kind of a minor back thing. And he mm-hmm. died, I guess, on the operating table. Um, and what was, uh, according to what I read, something of a, of a surgical, um, I don't know if it was malpractice as such, but sort of a, a surgical uh, misstep, you might say. I don't know. Um, I liked him a lot. He, of course, was a great, phenomenal figure with a tremendous resume. Um, he and I got along really well. And I think he had a, he had a special uh, feeling for me. I, I felt he was really especially nice to me. And not that he wasn't to everyone. He was to everyone. But I, I felt um, good in his presence because I felt he was I think he was, um, I think he was um, sort of folding his arms around the fact of my age and the fact that I was older and still competing and still performing and still full of fresh ideas about how to do things. I think he was, I think he was uh, embracing that and enjoying that. Like, like I understand, you know, as an actor, what you might have been through to get to this point. Um, and I applaud it with sort of his, which, you know, one doesn't need that. But it was from someone like Frankenheimer that was a um, was a welcoming sort of overall gesture that I felt. It's like I think when I when I first met him, I think he said something like, "Like I've seen a lot of stuff you've done, and that's all I need." Or something like that. I mean, he didn't he didn't fool around with saying, you know, prove to me that you can do this. He just said, you know, you've got the burden, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. So uh, I liked him naturally. How could one not like, and I was uh, very uh, disheartened when he, uh, when he died. Yeah. And seemed to be uh, full of a certain kind of, uh, of humane depth that's, um, that's not always present on a movie set. Especially in the in the reigning chief of the operation, uh, like the director. 
Now, being that you've been acting for many decades, you have worked with different generations of filmmakers. Do you think that there's a difference between today's generation of young filmmakers and the generations of filmmakers you have worked with in the, in the past? Well, the difference is, um, is that today's filmmaker, I think, um, by and large, has less autonomy. Um, uh, unless, you're, unless you're that rare director who has reached that career position mm-hmm. um, where, where that autonomy is real. Um, and uh, I think there used to be more uh, easily <coughs> expressed autonomy uh, back when I first started. Uh, and maybe only the star had a lot of power otherwise. Um, and um, in the back when I first started making films, the, the director uh, probably did the casting for most of the parts also. Um, and, and that gives the, a certain responsibility to the director uh, that, he, uh, that he either embraces or, or he doesn't if he thinks he's made a mistake. But, um, but the director was more hands-on, I think, uh, in, uh, in past days than today. So that's what I've seen. But uh, I, haven't done a, uh, I haven't done a feature for a while. Uh, I've done a few TV things that they, I told you the last one was the, uh, the Messiah. And, um, and features, features are different, though. They, they have different, um, different time frames, different schedules, different budgets, um, and different uh, destinations, different aims than features do. It's all, it's all kind of mixed up now because what's a feature and what's not a feature, that's all mm-hmm. up for discussion now. Because stuff is being released both at the same time on TV and in screens and theaters across the country. So things are different. Let's get to the section of the show where we take uh, fan questions. Whenever I plan an episode with a guest, I like to go on social media and go in different groups and what have you and ask people, hey, I'm having so-and-so on the show. Do you have any questions for him? So let's take some questions from uh, the audience. Sure. Ken Klassen asks, Jerry Seinfeld has said in interviews how he couldn't hold it together during Bookman's rant and how they had to do multiple takes. Did you ever break character during any of these scenes and did you cause any retakes as a result? Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, again, it's a long time ago. It's over 20 years ago. So I don't remember, but I do... There is one thing I remember. I remember in a scene in his apartment where I break away to audience, uh, to my right as an actor, but audience left. There's a breakaway there. I'm with him and then I break away quickly, roughly, brusquely, might be the better word. Um, I think we stopped camera there for some reason. Uh, that They didn't get the breakaway or it wasn't clear or clean and we had to stop and pick up. But I think we did some takes where we didn't, because because the the rant worked so well as a. Uh, uh, they decided when we did it that it worked so well as a monologue that they wanted to have one clean one clean shot of it uninterrupted, um, mm-hmm. with him sort of a bookman that is uh, sort of answering his own questions right as a way 
giving his own answer to the rhetorical questions that, that he frames with Jerry. Um, and it's true, Jerry was, uh, I when I auditioned for that, uh, it's one of the last things, it may have been, in fact, the last thing I ever auditioned for. It may have been, um, my life changed significantly after that. Um, I really did change. I mean, that was a, you might call it a, a sea change in my life as a, as an actor and and um, as a as a as an actor. Um, I I remember auditioning for that. Jerry was there. Uh, the whole group was there. The director was there. Um, assorted people were in the room. Jerry and I sat opposite each other. And um, he couldn't stop laughing. He, he laughed the whole time through. And it's true. He did laugh the whole time through. He really enjoyed it. So, and when I, when I finished, uh, nobody said anything to me. They were just laughing. Uh, and they said uh, uh, that um, they, they had a lot of people to see yet. And there were the, the, those spots for the Seinfeld guest characters were of course prime spots. Every actor in town, especially many actors who were out of work, uh, and what actor is not out of work, uh, but a lot of actors who had been on series, some of them very successful series, now ended, were there. I remember seeing that room when I first went in, the waiting room, and I was surprised at how many recognizable faces were there. I thought, oh my God, everybody is, everybody wants this part. I thought, well, of course, it's a great part. So, and I did have a copy of it. Um, so, um, when I went in and had this, what seemed like a very successful audition, and they said, we, we can't tell you anything. You know, we have a lot of people that we have to see. So I walked out uh, with a lot of people still that they had to, uh, to listen to, to watch, to audition. So that when I got home, uh, I don't know, an hour or so after I got home, I got a phone call from my agent saying that they, uh, that they wanted me to do it. Uh, that is quicker than it mostly happens. Well, mostly in the past it happened when they want you um, after you've read for something and they have other people to see. Because usually they have to go through a lot of discussion, the pros and cons, those who liked your reading, those who didn't. Um, it all gets worked out before they finally make a decision. Uh, and uh, I figured when I got that, how quickly I got that call, that it must have been pretty well unanimous. Of course, hey, if Jerry's laughing, it's probably unanimous, right? Uh, probably everybody uh, was eager to, uh, if Jerry liked it, it was probably good enough for them. And he did like it. So, uh, yeah, it was good. What was it about that role that changed your career? Um, Compared to well, the other roles? It, I don't know. It was funny. First of all, it was a, Seinfeld was a popular show. Um, and it was, it was funny. It was, it was funny. It's uh, Anybody who sees that for the first time um, can't um, you can't stop laughing. It's there's something funny about it. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 weird, you know. Um, it's it's bizarre. It's a, it's a bizarre role because he's got that thing at the end when he says, "Whatever, did you ever hold a dying a dying man in your arms?" And all this stuff at the end, he's like, "What? This guy's totally bunkers." Right? <laughs> um, not unlike a lot of other characters on Seinfeld, he wouldn't be the first Seinfeld 
guest character to be like totally nuts uh, <laughs> as part of the, the comedy of the show. But he was pretty nuts, Bookman was. Um, I think it was it was that and the uh, the uh, the fact that and this was not usual on the show that they wrote a five page monologue for a guest character that was not the format of the show the um, and and several other scenes as well but that was quite a monologue just in length and um, and just let it go okay here's five five pages go ahead say whoa okay and for Look, I did Nixon. It's two hours. Okay. I mean, it's like, what is five pages to me? It's like, you know. Um, anyway, it was a it was an opportunity that that I remember getting from the agent saying, uh, they want you to be like a, you know, like the uh, the character on uh, uh, Ragnet. Yeah. And um, the Jack Webb. The Jack Webb character on Dragnet. They said, "Well, I don't do imitations, so I thought, oh, but I have my sense of that character, kind of all-knowing, a little smug, uh, with a little bit of a satiric sensibility, and going there, um, but not stopping to uh, to pause or think about anything, just moving on. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. Bookman is moving on." Atik Rahman asks, what was it like working on Cheers? Yeah, Cheers was um was a more of a of a of a kind of a locked up set. They had their um they they had their format there. And um it, it, obviously they'd been on a long time. They had a winning format and it wasn't uh, it wasn't what I would call wide open. Nothing wrong with that. It was a great show. <clears throat> I always enjoyed watching that show. I mean, watching Cheers, um, but I never felt um, I never felt sort of released on that show uh, to to let my to let my particular uh, uh, gifts flow on that show. Hey, uh, it was okay. I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not flushing it down the uh, the rabbit hole, but. Um, I never felt really comfortable on the on the Cheers show, even though I liked the show. Now, before we end this interview, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? Well, <laughs> it's kind of wide open, right? <laughs> uh, hey, if you're a young actor, the uh, that's who I would mostly be. Uh, I think concerned about that that the uh, the old way. Um, has changed and the old way is now the new way and 10 years from now, I guess it'll be the old way. So um, whatever the, the new way is, having to uh, audition this way and everything online. And uh, uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to have a life as an actor, this is probably what you're going to have to do. Uh, and uh, and I, I certainly uh, hope you can have a life as an actor, except once you um, once you cross a certain threshold, it's a great life, uh, and I've certainly the last um, well, I would say uh, I, I would say ever since. See, I, I've had two lives as an actor. Just I should back up a little bit, and this is available to anybody probably. I've had one life as a theater actor. For me, an actor's 
an active success comes when he regains some autonomy over his life. And um, a film actor, uh, until you get to a certain level, you have very little autonomy. If somebody offers you a crumb, you sort of have to nibble it up, trying to get to the next larger crumb, and maybe to, and so on. In the theater, it's different. In the theater, your ability to do the job uh, is is evident very quickly. Uh, if you audition for a role uh, on a Broadway or a New York off-Broadway or a regional theater or any stage, a director can tell within probably five minutes or less if you are right for this role or if you have the, the kind of technique that's necessary excuse me, to succeed as a theater actor. It's a very different deal from a uh, where the whole expressive um, technique via the voice, the face, and the body is essential, uh, as opposed to film, where it's mainly, as they will tell you, about the face, in particular about the eyes. That's where it is in film. And um, so if you can get autonomy in one, it allows you to work on it in the other. I had autonomy as a theater actor long before I had any as a film actor. Uh, I was able to decide what roles I would take, which I would turn down, where I wanted to work, where I didn't want to work uh, 20 years before, uh, more than that even, before I had any autonomy in film. But in theater, I had quite a bit of autonomy earlier. I read for a part or I was offered a role and say, I don't want to do this and didn't feel that, that I was turning down the path to a better life. Um, so one way, and the way it happened for me, I became very accomplished as a theater actor. I was very accomplished. I was highly skilled, no doubt about that. I knew what I was doing on the stage. When I came out here to do film, I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember a director early on saying to me, you can't do, and, and he was sympathetic. He was nice. He said, but you can't do that in film. He said, you can do that in the theater. He said, but you can't do that in film. It doesn't make any, it doesn't read. He said, only your face will read. He said, but you, you don't know that. He said, you haven't been here long enough to understand that it's a whole different deal out here than it was in New York in the theater. And he's right about that. They are really different techniques. And um, so becoming a good actor through the old way, through Gibson and Shakespeare and O'Neill and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams, uh, the old way is pretty good uh, because that really prepares you then and equips you well for working on film, uh, I think. So I'm, I'm embracing the old way as a way to start and uh, just go all the way with that. All the theater you can do in high school and in college and in small theaters and, uh, and then in New York and, and whatever, off-Broadway. Off-Broadway now, it's like Broadway. I mean, off-Broadway budgets are now half a million dollars or a million dollars, even off-Broadway. Used to be able to mount a play off-Broadway for $300. I mean, now it's $3 million. It's totally crazy what's happened with the prices of all this in New York. So anyway, become a good actor. And, uh, and you can do that that whole learning and experience thing, you can do it in the theater more easily than you can do it on films. 
hey, if you get lucky in film, don't turn it down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Hall, thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, This has been a wonderful interview, and uh, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. I want to give a special thanks to the late, great Mitchell Ryan, who months before his death recommended to me to have Philip on this show. Since Philip was such a great guest, we are very thankful that Mitchell made that suggestion, and we hope that he's resting in peace as well. We here at What a Character also send our deepest and sincerest condolences to Mr. Hall's friends and family. Mr. Hall was truly an intelligent and kind-hearted human being who always gave his all when it came to tackling film, stage, or TV roles. And because of his brilliant work as an actor, he will always be fondly remembered by film and TV aficionados for years to come. He is and will always be missed. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email-exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for our interview with the late, great Mitchell Ryan. In his final interview recorded five months before his death, Mitchell talks to us about such things like being discovered by Robert Mitchum, getting arrested with Oliver Reed, and overcoming alcoholism. It's all that and more on next week's episode of What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. I know what you're thinking. What's this guy making such a big stink about old library books? Well, let me give you a hint, Junior. Maybe we can live without libraries, people like you and me. Maybe. Sure, we're too old to change the world. But what about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees and a cat in the hat and the five Chinese brothers? Doesn't he deserve better? Look. If you think this is about overdue fines and missing books, you better think again. This is about that kid's right to read a book without getting his mind warped. Or maybe that turns you on, Seinfeld.
Maybe that's how you get your kicks. You and your good time buddies. Well, I got a flash for you, Joy Boy. Party time is over. You got seven days, Seinfeld. That is one week. <laughs> <laughs>